0: Oh, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No way. We take part ourselves, man.
1: That's right. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher.
0: And I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm back. Sorry, I was gone last week.
1: Hey, welcome back.
0: Thank you. Good to see you. I was taking a class at Harvard. Heard of it?
1: Fancy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no big deal. What
1: was your class about?
0: It was called Pseudoscience and Mental Health.
1: That sounds related to our podcast.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. I loved it. The professor was Dr. Cynthia Myersberg. She was fantastic. Highly recommend.
1: Now, you said that the professor was good, but the only thing that you told me about the class other than that was just that occasionally people would say some uh, <laughs> g- disprovable things.
0: That's true. There are- that
1: they should have known a little better about
0: Maybe. Yeah. There were like two or three people who I was like, I'm glad you're here.
1: Yeah. Okay. You're
0: the intended audience. Gotcha. But no, it was so good. It was so informative. And yeah, I really felt like I got an even better grasp of the situation.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Which, speaking of that, will be kind of relevant to this episode. It will. An interview that you are about to hear. With none other than
0: Lucian Greaves,
1: Lucian Greaves, friend uh, of mine, and the co-founder and co-discoverer of the (laughs) The
0: Satanic Temple. The Satanic Temple.
1: Yeah, we've been wanting to talk to him for a long time, and uh, we're really excited to share this interview with you. We talk about a lot of things, church, state, separation, oh gosh, so much issues that Lucian is always intimately involved with, but we also talk to him kind of following up with our Bob Larson series mm-hmm. and looking at issues of possession and also the science around Recovered memory, dissociative identity disorder. Yep. So let this be a notification that these topics will come up yeah. during this interview.
0: Yeah. So he he gets into a whole bunch of stuff here, and we couldn't fact check every possible thing, though he's a he's a very reputable source. But there are a few things that I just want to say I don't know about at all, <laughs> and those include like the Church of Satan. He mentions them. Mm-hmm. As distinct from the Satanic Temple, I know nothing about the Church of Satan.
1: Lucian is a super smart guy. He's got a fun attitude. Just know that (laughs) maybe his way of expressing things wouldn't always be necessarily the way we do on Ono, Ross, and Carrie. But that's his approach, and he's got a good approach.
0: Yeah. One of the things I love about Lucian is he's obsessed with a lot of the same subjects I'm obsessed with. And is able to catalog sources in his head in a way that blows me away. Like he can just name for you the most recent study that's been peer reviewed on repressed memory. Just ask him. He'll just know. It's pretty wild. So those people. Parts of the conversation we both know a little more about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so recovered memories. Meaning
1: than me, because I really don't. Oh, (laughs) no, I meant
0: meant you and I know more about that than about, say, the Church of Satan. Oh,
1: gotcha. Um, So
0: those parts of the conversation we're we're a little more informed on. But yeah, uh, Lucian does take uh, a different tone than we do. One of the things I wrote down as I was listening to this again, because we recorded this a a couple months ago? Yeah, a while ago. ago. yeah, And I was listening back to the audio just like, what did we talk about? And when I did, I wrote down that he said, intellectually insulting supernatural beliefs (laughs) as a phrase when he was just talking about religion at large. So, you know. That's a different tone than we would take. But, you know, the point is, if that's the kind of thing that you don't feel like doing today, don't feel like listening to, this ain't your episode.
1: And again, uh, we talk about issues that we've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners about when it comes to repressed memory. Uh, We understand these are tricky topics and we don't purport to be speaking to any specific cases.
0: Uh, Except when we do. And then we'll name them.
1: Right. So at least let us acknowledge here that these are complicated topics best done with a qualified therapist.
0: Mm -hmm. And even within that world, there are some problems with licensure that Lucian will get into. That situation is really complex, and I'm not sure what the solution is right now, but the first step is obviously going to be to understand the problem.
1: What the solution
0: Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it.
1: So if that's a difficult topic to traipse into, we totally understand if you want to skip that. But we are very interested in hearing Lucian's reaction to some of these issues because he has dealt with Bob Larson and Mm -hmm. the Satanic Panic. Uh, You'll notice that we mention a lot the McMartin case. Yeah. And we jump into that with quite a bit of familiarity. If you're not too familiar with it, there was a preschool that was accused of just horrendous acts in the early 1980s mm-hmm. uh, that they had been abusing children and the the claims got carried away.
0: Yeah, it was a very far-fetched claim. So it was that they were abusing children sexually and otherwise in underground tunnels Traveling them to other churches far away to participate in satanic rituals.
1: Sacrificing animals. Yep. Taking kids up in airplanes with. Clowns. Um, yeah. So all of this came down to qu- questioning: Can you just believe everything children are saying? Are they being coerced into saying things? Are they leading the witness in how they're prepping children mm-hmm. for these testimonies? So it, all of this is really tricky, squishy stuff. Yep. Um. And so just know that we'll we'll be referring to that case if you're looking for a dramatized version of the story. Just as like kind of a quick overview of the the rough uh, timeline and events. There's a movie called Indictment: The McMartin Trial with none other than James Woods uh playing the the main lawyer in the in the case.
0: Yeah, I think that if there's one takeaway from these sorts of stories, it's that you can't just ask yourself whether someone is lying. That's not the only question. Someone right. can remember, can be completely sincere, be feeling very strong emotional feelings about what they remember, and still be wrong about what happens.
1: Right. And that child or adult. And this comes up in the interview, but we talk about how. How difficult it can be to ascribe blame in such situations because mm-hmm. oftentimes even the therapist maybe is doing the wrong thing, but not realizing it is doing it mm-hmm. out of good motives. Um, so, yeah. you know, keep an open mind on that conversation and hopefully this gives you some good food for thought.
0: We also mentioned New York Magazine. Yes. So I think this comes up a little void of context. So, just to give folks the context, there was an article that came out of New York Magazine and The Cut, which is its website that was about the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, which is was an organization founded by parents who had been accused of abusing their children.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Those parents claimed that they hadn't and that their kids, some of them adults, some young, had been manipulated consciously or unconsciously by therapists or other mm-hmm. parents, et cetera, to have these memories. So again, genuine memories of things that didn't happen. That was the claim of the parents. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you get into a sticky situation there, right? Yep. When you form an organization like that, very likely you're going to have...
1: Can set things up for motivated reasoning...
0: Sure. But you're also probably going to get people who are innocent and people who aren't. That's yeah. probably going yeah. to happen. That's also going to happen with nearly anything you could set up, right? Like right. you're going to get people who are there for the for the wrong reasons, to use a phrase from The Bachelor. And
1: people who are guilty of abuse and other mm-hmm. criminality, they will try to use this as a tool yep. to cast out on people who are trying to see them brought to justice. Yeah, that's a problem.
0: Yep. That's a that's a real fallout of of a real problem, you know, because false memory is also a reality. So anyway, that will come up here. And the article in question, the New York Magazine article, was written by a journalist named Katie Heaney. And she really tore apart the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, Mm -hmm. really, I think, tried to paint them as a group of abusers Mm -hmm. who all had bad motives and also painted the people who founded it as abusers. It's such a more complex story than that. And so I wrote a letter to New York Magazine saying like, hey, I I don't think this was great journalistic work, because at least let's hear, you know, more of the details of this story. Mm -hmm. It's at the very least complex. And they didn't print that story. And then in the wake of that, I found out that there were a bunch of very well-written, well-reasoned letters, many from experts or people who had been mentioned in the piece who Mm -hmm. wrote in and said, what the heck happened here? And they didn't print those either. So I ended up printing all of them in a medium piece. So if anyone wants to do this deep dive, that's out there as well.
1: Which includes a piece by Lucian Greaves.
0: Yeah, he wrote a great letter.
1: Okay, well, hopefully that sets some context for this wide-ranging discussion to come. Um, We're very happy to introduce you to Lucian Greaves.
0: Ross, I'm so excited to introduce you, finally, to my friend Lucian. I feel like this has been a long time coming.
1: Yeah, you know, it has to be over Zoom. You're on the East Coast, but it's really great to meet you, Lucian. Nice to meet you. It has been a long time in coming. What is the history? How do do you know each other? There we go. That's my first question.
2: Excellent. I don't know. We've known each other for over a week now, so I don't... uh... I don't remember at all. That's how far back
0: your memory goes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much.
0: Well, I'll recover the memory of how we met. I'll admit... I was one of those people who thought that the Satanic Temple was a group of sort of cheeky activists who used the cloak of religion in order to mm. poke fun at uh, religious exemption in the U.S. And while I think there's an element of that, I thought that was sort of the whole bag.
1: Sort of a flying spaghetti monster group. Exactly. Pasta exactly.
0: So um, I went and saw the movie Hail Satan with my friend Jude, who very much grew up during the Satanic Panic. And afterward, she turned to me and she said, I can't believe it. This whole time I thought that Satanists were evil. (laughs) She's like. (laughs) <laughs> in her 50s and very very sweet. And that really struck me. I was like, "Oh, wow. Like uh, this this is actually like a very effective technique that they've that they've used here." And I had already sort of grown in my admiration for Lucian through that movie. Ooh. So afterward, I wrote to Lucian, I think on Twitter, and we just started talking mostly about repressed memory, which we both had this this deep fascination with. Ooh, yeah. um, and so then we ended up uh, texting and just, you know, becoming friends. And then he came to San Diego, which is not too far from us, to record an album. Cause he's also a musician. And uh, went down there and hung out. Okay. Now we proper friends.
1: Well, this is cool, and we've already touched on some of these issues that I know we're going to have to disambiguate. I'm sure, Lucian, you start every conversation this way, but maybe you can sort of explain for our listeners who maybe think Satanism is evil uh, what the difference is between the Satanic temple that you co-founded versus the Church of Satan and sort of when you got founded and, and what your main names are.
2: Right. Well, I think first and foremost, people need to realize we're a non-theistic religion. We don't espouse supernaturalism. We don't venerate Satan as a actual literal mm-hmm. deity, but as a literary construct and icon of the ultimate rebel against tyranny. The differences between us and the Church of Satan are pretty extreme. Some people see us as being very similar in core values, and that, that could really be true. You know, mm-hmm. Satanism, both in the context of The Church of Satan and the Satanic Temple are considered left-hand path religions where it's not about subjugating yourself to a higher power, but improving yourself as an individual. Um, Beyond that, the differences are are pretty severe in that uh, the Church of Satan takes a very authoritarian, autocratic perspective of that. That the dominant individual should lord over the unwashed <laughs> and uneducated masses and they oh, kind wow. of aspire to to build a kind of police state uh, even though they say they're apolitical they have their uh, very political agendas very very explicitly laid out and uh Whoa, they also okay. still talk quite a bit about practicing magic and even though it's gone quite out of fashion hmm. at least in satanist circles to speak about supernaturalism they will say that they do not believe in magic in a supernatural sense. However, magic can work some kind of supernormal powers that are unyet explained by science.
1: Interesting. And so it's just
2: supernaturalism by a different kind of
1: semantic framework. Yeah, yeah. So you say still. So the Church of Satan was founded in the 60s by Anton LaVey. They're still active. Do you ever interact with them, skirmish with them?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, they're not active except for as a Twitter account, essentially. You know, they they still have a website where they'll charge people over $200 for a membership card, but they don't have a physical property dedicated to what they do. They don't congregate. They don't involve themselves in anything. And they also hold up their lack of activity as some kind of noble virtue, because they don't get involved in politics because religion has no place in politics, you know. (laughs) They talk all about all the things they don't do, and they get very upset when the Satanic Temple does do anything, because it's not the proper place of Satanists to do anything at all, according to them. That's, I think, is just more justification for why they aren't actually active than anything else. So I, I think what, what you're getting from me is a sense of fuck them. <laughs> okay, I'm glad
1: we could uh, boil it down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so why start a religion? Why a religion and not a philosophy or a club or a political group or anything else? Well, I had
2: an affinity for Satanism, of course, well before the Satanic Temple. It wasn't one of those things where I was sitting around and thought, well, how, how do we how do we go about these church-state issues and and just come up with the idea of starting a religion and then arbitrarily choosing which one? The whole kind of non-theistic, satanic thing was very much my thing for many years before founding the satanic temple, but it was also not something I was willing to put out publicly to kind of possibly destroy my public reputation and bring harmed myself unless there's Mm -hmm. some kind of greater purpose for that. And at the point where we were starting the Satanic Temple, that greater purpose was there. You know, we were starting an organization for an organizational purpose for specific goals. So if it weren't for that kind of political activism we felt was really necessary for an alternative religion to claim equal access in areas where Christian nationalists were trying to beat down the doors to put up their monuments or their prescriptions or whatever else, you know, at that point, then coming out publicly as as a Satanist, you know, made sense. It was serving a greater purpose, but it was also something that, you know, I knew I had to be in for the long haul because I was really (laughs) aware of all the things that had happened during the Satanic Panic. People look back at the prankster-like things we did at the inception of the satanic temple and they were funny but they were also horrific to me because i didn't take any of it lightly you know i didn't take it lightly at all that my image was on the news being associated with this and just knowing that whole history of people's lives being absolutely destroyed on mere allegations of satanism people who Mm -hmm. had no attachment to anything satanic whatsoever so I knew that there was a lot of a lot of rough terrain to be to be traveled there but I have to say after like 8 years this has played out I think in a in a best case scenario fashion is to the kind of you know as opposed to the
1: uh Uh, pessimistic, uh, fatalistic view I had going into it. Yeah, it's not too often that we get to talk to a founder and discoverer of a religion. and so There's uh, a lot of startups, but they don't last very long. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it sounds like, you know, you did this conscientiously, knowing Satanism carries a lot of baggage, especially with the religious set, that even in conversations with people like us, you'd have to do a lot of sort of explaining and defining of terms. You also mentioned uh, another aspect, which is safety. Is there anything that you have to do to protect yourself or your identity f- from a lot of people who probably hate you?
2: Yeah. From the very beginning, there were always people posting bizarre things online, making really outrageous claims, and claims of the type that if one were to take them seriously, I would fully be deserving of getting shot <laughs> or otherwise yeah, if you were taken out of prison. Eating permission. babies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Human sacrifice, all that kind of thing, and and really trying to undermine the entire fabric of civilization and having the power to do so in some (laughs) people's minds. But the kind of uh, outrage we get waxes and wanes, you know, depending on how much we're in the news and also depending on election cycles Mm. just before the presidential election or months before the presidential election, actually, there was one week. I'd have to look and sit back and see which week it was. But it was the week, I think, where the paid trolls and everything else started really appearing online, trying to put out formative false information about uh, that would persuade the election one way or the other. And Are while we talking about 2016
0: Twitter... or 2020?
2: No, 2020. 2016, I wasn't as aware of these things. I don't think anybody was aware of like the sure. troll farms and things like that. And uh, I, even then, didn't have as much of a feel for the kind of environment of my Twitter feed, I think, in 2016. You know, random hate would pop on there or whatever. But it had gotten to the point by 2020 where, you know, I have a consistent base of people who comment on my things and everything. And it's usually pretty peaceful, you know. Every so often there's some asshole pops on and, and decides to troll or whatever. But one week, all of a sudden, in my feeds were, you know, all these... Bizarre QAnon things popping up, all these allegations after things I would say, and mm-hmm. talking heads of the conservative camp, even some high-profile ones who you know aren't just uh, just anonymous trolls or whatever, started talking about our Baphomet monument, which we had, uh, had offered to put alongside a Ten Commandments monument, first in Oklahoma and then in Arkansas. And you see that right. whole story in the Hail Satan documentary. But offered to is a very sweet way to put it, right? (laughs) But when uh, when the BLM protests were Mm. were breaking out after the George Floyd murder, and this was part of the run up to the 2020 election, it became real popular for conservative talking heads to say, "Well, if these icons to our American heritage and history, meaning Confederate memorials, Mm -hmm. were to be torn down," Then, you know, this Baphomet monument should be torn down as well. And there were usually pictures accompanying this, you know, it'd be like two pictures a picture of BLM protesters tearing down a Confederate memorial, and then below it, they would show a picture of the Baphomet monument saying this, this should be torn down too. And that was kind of harrowing because our Baphomet monument is not on public property right now, it's on private property, it's in oh, our wow. headquarters. and. Somebody savvy enough to look it up could figure out where it is, but somebody stupid enough might not realize the the real difference there, you know, and there was a real fear that somebody at least in that time frame i mean any time they could come but especially then we really felt on high alert that somebody was bound to feel they had the justification of some patriotic majority to come and burn our place down and mm-hmm. and I was staying at the headquarters at the time, locked down for the for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I spent m- many a night just watching the cameras.
0: I bet. Wow. So uh, with the Baphomet statue, that reminds me of something you said earlier in this conversation. You were you were saying that early in the development of the Satanic Temple, you, uh, I think you used the word pranks. What were some of the things that felt more like pranks?
2: Yeah. At the beginning, like I said, uh, it was really harrowing to the very idea of being recognized publicly as a Satanist. And I felt like in some ways I was really throwing my life away, like uh, in the Google universe, you know, I'll never live that one down. You know, what else am I going to do for a job or whatever? I couldn't publicly out myself as a Satanist for like six months and move into normalcy thereafter, you know, Mm -hmm. this is something that was going to follow me forever. And we knew we had no idea how well this would work out. So in a way... Allowing some of our presentation to be pranksterish helped in kind in a in a little way mitigate that, you know, like if people wanted to look at it as a prank, it seemed a little less dangerous too. So mm-hmm. even though it's important that people know that we're not and that we have our own affirmative values and everything else in that harrowing time, it was easier to do things like advocate for Governor Rick Scott in Florida, where you see at the beginning of the Hail Satan documentary we pulled this prankster-ish type activism where we went to the capital of Florida to honor Rick Scott, who is an asshole. You know, <laughs> he's a, he's a, he was a conservative asshole governor, and he was pushing for this religious liberty bill to put prayer in schools. And we thought, well, you know, Satanists can give invocations or do whatever satanic practice in school too. So, you know, and that was surely an unintended consequence of what Rick Scott was doing, but we wanted to get everybody to realize that. And we did that by claiming that we were honoring Rick Scott. We wouldn't do that anymore mm-hmm. because I just really don't like to take that kind of, that back door of, of pretending we're we're on the side of somebody that we're not. Uh, things are hard enough to parse in the, in the fake news environment that, you know, we, we decided really quite early on, that we didn't want to disingenuously present ourselves for anything.
0: Yeah, it seems like originally the idea was something more along the lines of, if you're going to have religious exemption, then we're going to sort of poke holes in that idea by saying, okay, then exempt us too. So now what do you think of religious exemption laws? I
2: think so long as it's accounted for that it respects pluralism and that the government remains neutral regarding viewpoint, then I don't see anything wrong with it, honestly. I think if they approach it that way, that there should be some kind of recourse for religious people to claim that certain government mandates are too restrictive against their beliefs. I mean, if it's some kind of fairly arbitrary prohibition or requirement, and it's something that people feel fundamentally violates their sense of identity based on the community they're in, I think they should be able to make that argument. And I don't think there's any problem with people being able to make that argument, unless, of course, the courts are treating one religious viewpoint differently from others. And horrifically, we find when we're in the courts, I think, that we're very clearly being treated differently than other religious organizations. Mm -hmm. And right now, we have litigation in play against abortion restrictions. Previously, we've gone to court regarding invocations, you know, when city councils or other uh, public meetings will allow for prayers beforehand. They can't discriminate against viewpoint either. So we'll have chapters or other members of the Satanic Temple offering to give these invocations and they'll, they'll say no, you know, we'll sue. Mm. And this happened in uh, Arizona and uh, happened in Boston too in Boston we're still in litigation with, and we went into litigation in uh, in Arizona. And, you know, contrary to what we thought based on all the precedent, in Arizona they really tried to question our religious authenticity, which on the face of it I think is outrageous when you consider some of the religious liberty claims brought forth by self-professed Christians and how even the very notion that some of these beliefs they subscribe to are somehow attached to Christianity at all. I mean, at what point did anybody Mm -hmm. ever justify from the Bible the anti-abortion stance? And when they do, it's really tenuous and unconvincing, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we get into the courtroom and, and they're saying, well, there's nothing in your beliefs or in your tenets that demand that somebody get an abortion. Therefore, you know, us imposing state-mandated religious materials that state that a fetus is an individual human life and that you're committing murder is no imposition upon your religious viewpoint, even though it directly contradicts it. You know, and I just feel like if it were reversed, you know, if a Christian were making the claim... I mean, think of Hobby Lobby. I mean, they never asked, is there any legitimacy to the idea that a corporation can hold a religious belief or that they have mm-hmm. the right to mm-hmm. impose it upon employees no. or that there's anything within the Christian belief system that would say anything about insuring people for certain contraceptives? All right. of those are, are huge question marks that they never explored. But then when you, when you get the satanic temple in the, in the courtroom, all of a sudden... These questions are very relevant.
0: Though I still hear you arguing from the position of if you're going to give these exemptions to them, you need to treat us equally. I'm trying to get you one level below that, To But are the exemptions good? Because we do have things like religious exemptions for vaccines. So would the... In your mind, would the better outcome be that religious exemptions are sort of weakened in American political life? Or is it simply we should have religious exemption? It's a good thing, but we need to also respect minor religions.
2: Well, it depends on the exemption, right? I don't think there should be an exemption from vaccination because that doesn't only affect the religious population in question. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's it's that whole libertarian ideal of your right to swing your fist ends at somebody else's face. And I, I believe that that's part of the, the question involved when it comes to vaccination or, or any of
1: these things. I mean, I think there should be a. But maybe for uh, like conscientious objection to participation in war, would you give yeah, a. Those types of things there?
2: I think are open questions, right? I, I think like. I think the, the government should have a burden of proof to say that this is it doesn't just affect the religious community claiming mm. exemption. Uh, right. And at the point where it does, I think they they can claim they have a, a legitimate interest in, in reigning that in. It, it's very easy for me to think of cases in which exemption shouldn't be respected and very few, honestly, where I feel like it should. But I, I do think that, you know, the argument should be made. Some people have... Uh, you know there might be some obscure religious viewpoints that we don't realize are are being uh, imposed upon by certain mandates or whatever and I, I just feel like the argument should be made you know or or somebody should have recourse in those in that regard like say peyote rights you yeah. know like they, they uh classify different narcotics and they claim there's a government interest in regulating them or or banning them outright but there's You know, certain populations have been using these as sacraments for a long time. And I do feel like they should be able to make the argument that the government has no right to
1: tell them that they can't.
0: Yeah, also because it sounds dope. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. In that case, maybe there is an underlying argument for more universal applicability of that. You know, like ah, oh, maybe more people should be able to recreationally even use some of these substances, but at least let's get a toehold for these people who have been doing it. Uh, well, I think time.
2: that kind of gets to the bigger question of what's a religion then, and why aren't your mm. deeply held beliefs considered religious values, and why do some people insist that? Only if you subscribe to intellectually insulting supernatural beliefs are your values worth protecting. And that's the argument we're often making when people make the claim that because we're non-theistic, we can't also authentically be a religion. But that's also to say that these deeply held values that we have are less worthy of any type of protection for the mere fact that we're not going around saying that we're speaking directly with some kind of Satan in corporeal form that appears from the ether every now and again, or something ridiculous like that. Why would somebody like that have elevated rights over somebody who lives somewhere more grounded in reality? I,
0: I mean, it would also preclude things like secular Buddhism, secular Judaism... You're not the only secular religion out there. Right. If that, uh, if that phrase even makes sense.
2: No, no, it, it does. It, it, and there are a lot of, there are already a lot of non theistic religious groups. I, I sometimes feel like people like to pretend that we're unique. So as to marginalize us, you know, to to act like this is just kind of a a, A an off the cuff idea, yeah, yeah,
1: and, and that it's not worth really considering. So, so you're you're making the point that sure, religion should be a protected class in certain applications, but there should be equal protections for those who don't subscribe to religion as traditionally understood or defined by much of the American public.
2: Yeah, and what we're seeing now with this generations-long rise of Christian nationalism trying to enact a theocratic coup in the United States and, and broadly, more broadly worldwide is that they're redefining terminology like religious liberty to mean the exclusive rights for Christianity on the public grounds. It started out with these arguments for pluralism, Mm -hmm. And now I think even with uh, just since the Satanic Temple has manifested and started fighting these battles, we're seeing the Project Blitz Christian nationalists moving towards arguments of heritage and history and trying Mm -hmm. to claim that there's a unique status for Christian monuments in the Christian religion based upon the heritage of the United States that they have a right to preference. And we haven't seen very strong arguments for that yet, but I feel like... Part of what is going to happen now because we are fighting these battles and other people are learning to see the issues in this way is that the courts are going to have to make this determination and I, I don't know I, I feel like it'll go very much against everything that that this nation was premised upon for mm-hmm. them to give exclusive status to the Christian religion but then again Trump did install a lot of unqualified, ignorant federal judges who have very little care for what precedent is or what the law actually is. It's going to have
1: repercussions. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. As you're describing these actions, I'm just exhausted for you because it's a lot of work to, well, be a spokesperson for this, to constantly be trying to tease apart these ideas of freedom and what is religion. Also, you're talking about legal action. That's a lot of work. And you know, I'd be curious to know how many lawsuits you're fielding at any given time. Also, I'm sure you run into standing issues wherever you're bringing this. So you have to have the local chapters and involvement. I mean, is this your full time job? how much work is this? How many people have to be involved? And uh, do you get exhausted?
2: Yeah, no, I get exhausted all the time, and I feel that, you know, more recently, my productive output has fallen because of it, you know, because there's there's only so much outrage you can feel before <laughs> you just start getting exhausted, you know, yeah. and uh, it's certainly not lucrative, you know. Me and Ma- my business partner, Malcolm, co-founded the Satanic Temple, and neither of us take a salary from it, though we could. You know, legally we're allowed that and I don't think anybody would have room to complain. But we also put so much money into these lawsuits and everything that we're doing that neither of us wants to do that. We've put our own money, a Hmm. lot of it, into a lot of this stuff, especially when we don't, you know, when the slack needs to be picked up. It's all prohibitively expensive, these, uh, these lawsuits and everything that we do. And we don't charge for membership we don't charge any type of uh, registration fees or annual fees to our chapters or anything else there's no there's no pay to play within the satanic temple i make my money based off of the individual projects i do my patreon account working on writing i'll be you know making money from the music i put out and stuff like that but those are all my own projects all the money for for the satanic temple goes into satanic temple projects And what can be exhausting about that is to also see people online claiming based upon nothing that this is all just some kind of money making scheme, you know, literally anything I could have done would have been more lucrative than this, you know, and I don't expect a medal for that or anything, but I would at least expect people to acknowledge that that I'm not a con man trying to rip them off when when it's very, very clear on record that I'm not drawing any income from it.
0: Fair. Uh, So one of the other things that you that your group does uh, activism wise is kind of what brought us here to this conversation. So let's talk about gray faction. What is gray faction? And did it grow up alongside the satanic temple come before the satanic temple? Tell us about the connection there.
2: Well, yeah, Grey Faction is the segment of the Satanic Temple that takes on uh, pseudoscience, conspiracy theories, and especially the Satanic panic, Hmm. conspiracist mythology, which is also tied in with pseudoscience uh, directly into pseudoscience related to notions of repressed memories and dissociative identity disorder and recovered memories of abuse, uh, because that was really the evidentiary basis for the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s these recovered memories of satanic ritual abuse that were supposed to be taking place that people had recalled under hypnosis sodium amytal interviews guided imagery sessions that type of thing mm-hmm. and now what we find of course is that this these type of tactics of recovering supposed repressed memories are uh, horrifically unreliable and are the same techniques that cause people to recall being abducted by aliens or having past lives or any other things that are really uh, unsubstantiated by anything else. Uh, False memory creation is what we find. And this was a topic near and dear to me well before the Satanic Temple. Uh, Part of, I think, what was really formative to me when I was younger that brought me to Satanism was being aware of the satanic panic, but being too young to realize just how ridiculous this moral panic was. You're hearing these voices of authority on daytime talk shows saying that there's this kind of occult mafia, you know, using mobile crematoriums and sacrificing infants. And they're all over the place, you know, they're in every community, you just don't see them. And they're working towards a a one world takeover, you know, and it's installing this kind of massive satanic empire and enslaving the rest of the population. It was, you know, the the foundational basis for QAnon. And I think part mm-hmm. of the problem we have now with QAnon is because we never really confronted the entrenched conspiracist narratives that arose during the Satanic Panic to the point that the foundational conspiracy theory that kicked off QAnon, Pizzagate, was Very similar to the McMartin preschool Hmm. uh, mythology from back in the 80s. And the McMartin case was one in which there was a preschool in California in a neighborhood, small house. But nonetheless, there's this legend that they had these massive tunnels underneath the house where they were killing. I think they they were reporting giraffes even and elephants, horses and flying kids to different locations during the day only to get them back on time for the parents to pick them up where they were being uh, harassed and abused by different celebrities, including Chuck Norris, he was pointed out.
0: That guy can do everything.
2: Yeah, no. So, <laughs> well, what happened was, is uh, one of the defense attorneys asked one of the children to just pick out any of the people in a lineup because they had done this before, and uh, the kids had picked some people out who then became implicated. And the defense was trying to prove, like, oh, look, these kids are trying to work with you here. They're gonna, they're gonna pick out anybody. So anyways, uh, kid pointed out Chuck Norris. You know, they just put a, a list together of people they knew couldn't possibly have anything to do with any of it. But, however, the conspiracy theorists took this as evidence that high-profile celebrities actually were in on this. Oh, wow. uh, uh, Chuck right. Norris was ever prosecuted. But you saw the same mythology pop up again with Pizzagate, this idea yeah. that there were these tunnels yeah. underground. And you could also see, if you checked out the deep kind of research uh, posts and boards for QAnon that they would reference this old bullshit.
1: From I, the I didn't Satanic think about Man. the connection between the tunnels underground with the McMartin case versus the basement at the uh, the pizza shop. Comet
0: ping pong. Yeah. yeah, right.
1: And Chuck Norris contrasted with now Tom Hanks somehow involved in the Wayfair conspiracy uh, that he's buying children online or something like that.
2: Yeah. But what's interesting about the idea of the tunnels under McMartin was that There were no tunnels under McMartin, for one thing. Right. There was a deranged former FBI agent who decided to find the tunnels under McMartin. So they cracked open the concrete floor, not doing anything to explain how they would have gotten through the concrete in normal circumstances.
1: (laughs) Right. Where's the bookshelf that you tilt
2: to get in there? (laughs) Right. And, And he started... He started digging, and according to him, it was loose dirt. You know, it had been filled in, and he was discerning enough to consider, like, where these tunnels had been and, and was just kind of digging them out again. And there were no borders to these tunnels. You know, it's just all dirt. Despite that, you know, if you look online, you'll see, like, pictures of Parisian sewers and stuff like that, you know, large brick tunnels and stuff like that. But that wasn't even the claim. Further, the tunnels he dug out were, like, 30 inches by 48 inches or something no way you know you'd have to crawl through definitely Mm -hmm. and there was certainly no way they were sacrificing large animals or anything like that it was just the idea that there were tunnels need to be defended and then they found debris. and yeah, they were saying this was that
0: kind of the smoking gun was right, finding yeah, yeah. like a cheeto bag or something. yeah right.
2: Wow. Oh no, but it was, it was worse than that, because uh, after, after the FBI agent got some spineless uh, archaeologist to sign off and say that there had been pre-existing tunnels, and by the FBI agent's own telling of the story, it took him like 30 days of pressuring this archaeologist to sign off and say that the tunnels were pre-existing. <laughs> because of the debris, somebody responsible took a look at this debris they were talking about and they dated it all within a certain time period at which they could say with a high level of certainty that this was trash that people buried. And it it had been that it was trash that dated from a time when there wasn't trash pickup in the neighborhood. And it was common practice (laughs) to dig a hole, bury your trash after you filled it up. Dig another hole and bury your trash. You know? And of course, there was like random items that, you know, pulled under the house or whatever, you know, that they were trying to to say also proved that this was this was it. But you, you you'll expect that kind of debris, right? The the bulk of the debris, you know, the yeah. the piles they were finding were buried trash. But however, to this day, you'll still see people. Uh, especially within an organization like the International Society for the Study of Trauma Dissociation, which still talks about satanic ritual abuse, still stands by this method of therapy in which you recover memories of repressed abuse and and treat dissociative identity disorder. They'll often say as kind of a signal as Mm. to what their beliefs are, it's kind of the shibboleth of uh, Mm. of the recovered memory industry, to say, however... There were tunnels under McMartin. Wow. And that's their way that's their way of indicating that they believe the conspiracy theories without getting much deeper into it. you know? The dog whistle. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and that's yeah. that's how they indicate to each other where they stand. You They're know? just
1: asking questions. Right. But it's interesting. You've made the case that, you know, there, there was this big satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. It was sort of a fad of sorts. It got on Geraldo and all of that. But then it didn't just fade away and become a small thing where, say, we run into Bob Larson, who still is very much singing this tune and holding a flame for the satanic panic. But you're saying it's leached out and become even broader as a societal problem in other related ways.
2: Well, The end of the Satanic Panic is marked around 1995, and to hear some of the academics talk about the Satanic Panic, you would think that this moral panic was isolated to this discrete time period where it had a distinct beginning you know, mm. uh, usually considered the publication of Michelle remembers, which was this mm, recovered memory lady. testimony of a woman who went in for a therapy under a Catholic psychiatrist who used hypnosis to, you know, bring forth these memories that she had been abused by none other than Satan himself. Right. And they, they took it, even though it had these supernatural elements to it, it was taken seriously as a story. Some people go back a little further to the kinds of things that, uh, Kind of inspired, Michelle remembers, like Mike Warren the Satan seller, yeah. uh, com- completely debunked of ours. book. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that it ended in 1995 comes around the time where Geraldo was willing to say he thought that he was wrong and that the recovered memory movement was a bunch of shit, and there were lawsuits being instigated against some of the therapists who had brought people into therapy and, and the people. Uh, who recovered from this therapy felt that they had been led to believe false narratives, false autobiographical narratives Mm -hmm. of satanic ritual abuse that had done them great harm. And so at that point, you had much less going on in the media insofar as promoting this idea. You were much less likely to see people recovering memories of abuse and then taking those recovered memories into the courtroom and try and get remediation of some type uh, based on that. But that didn't
0: But it still happens.
2: Yeah, it still happens. It's just kind of the conspiracist narrative changed, right? You still have therapists doing these things, but they'll often say that you can't get justice in the courts. The satanic movement mm-hmm. is just too entrenched. You know, you have judges and <laughs> law enforcement and journalists all in on this now. You're not going to Part find the justice. Conspiracy. It's just going to ruin your life. Yeah. And I think the greatest outrage of all of this, it makes it different than the Salem Witch Trials, where at least like after a, a year or so, you know, there was a lot of remorse and people tried to address the things that led this to happen. We never really address these things with the satanic panic And organizations like the ISSTD still do everything they
1: can is still promote these horrific ideas that still absolutely destroy lives. I'm curious to know kind of how you counter these groups, these movements, these conferences. Um, I'm also interested just in the gray faction itself. First of all, I want to thank you for spelling it with an E. That's my preferred spelling of gray. And, and why kind of separate that out? Is it just sort of a focus group, an interest group within the Satanic Temple? Or is it just for people who want to focus on that effort the satanic temple is in every way kind of like the anti-cult you know
2: and we give people a lot of uh, a lot of room for differing opinion right as long as it kind of boils down to these core ethics we have but we don't demand that anybody take a point of view of ours based simply on authority mm. and for some people, the gray faction issues we explore are are new territory. You know, they don't have a background with it. It might not be something they're entirely interested in, and they might not feel confident looking at some of these issues and just saying, based on what they know, which might not be much, that there's anything wrong with recovered memory therapies or that uh, dissociative identity disorder is. socio-cognitive construct rather than naturally occurring disorder based on the trauma model that uh, those who advocate for it Mm -hmm. put forward and we don't ask that people go through that level of research to uh, become a satanist right so that's why gray faction is Mm.
1: separate uh, from the rest of the satanic temple because you know we so that there's a no space to, to dwell where you don't necessarily sign on to that. Is it gray because it's a gray area or are there other, are there factions of other colors? No, I, I saw
2: some weird uh, conspiracy theory at one point online where somebody was saying we're clearly called gray faction based on some some Scientology thing. And people have tried to make the argument that gray cool. faction is like, is Scientologist in the, in the way that it's like anti-psychiatry or whatever, which is just clearly wrong. Oh, fine. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But also the, it just started being called Gray Faction because earlier on there was this idea that we were just going to make these different colored patches with our logo that would indicate different campaigns, hmm. you know. So if you were working with the reproductive rights campaign or whatever, there's like a purple patch or whatever. And we didn't have a name for what we were doing with the Gray Faction stuff, but there was the question of what color should the patches be. And I was just kind of like, well, I guess these are brain issues, so why not, you know, why not gray?
0: Oh, yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, so for lack of any other (laughs) word, we just naturally started calling it the gray faction, and it just, it stuck. (laughs) Probably a,
1: a, a real letdown as far as uh, the story of <laughs> how like it became it. to be called. Yeah, gray I like it. Associated with maybe the gray matter of the brain. Yeah.
0: Whoa, whoa. Stop everything, boys. Yeah. Boys, I'm here to talk about bras. Sorry.
1: Oh, this is so Carrie. Talking about <laughs> bras. Probably going to tell me about your fourth love.
0: No, you are so close. It's crazy. Uh, no, really? I was t- I was going to tell you about third love.
1: Oh well, that's better.
0: My first love being my left boob, my second love being <laughs> my right boob, and my third love being my keeping third them love. all together Ross, exactly, <laughs> Ross. What do you do for me time?
1: I like to. Well, I like to read. I mm. consider that my me time. Definitely. And now I've take. I used to never take baths, but now I will take a bath. Oh, love it! And I will read in the bath.
0: Ah, oh, I do that. Hey, I love a bath. I
1: don't know. I was never a bath person.
0: Oh man! I
1: laughed at bath people. <laughs> yeah like that that's what I (laughs) do those bath people who takes baths
0: I take more baths than showers
1: interesting Mm -hmm. okay Mm
0: -hmm. something to know about me what do
1: you do for uh, me time Carrie
0: oh thank you for asking I like playing the banjo I like reading Ah. I like petting my dog and my cat oh yeah I like hanging out with Drew Mm -hmm. making out sometimes
1: okay yeah well
0: that's what you I don't want to get too tmi here. young love um (laughs) Yeah, and I love. I just fucking love wearing a bra. I guess that's why I'm talking about this.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You know, there's nothing more sacred than me time, Ross. There is nothing more sacred. You heard it here. I'm saying it just because I feel like it and certainly not because it's written out in front of me. There is nothing nothing more (laughs) more sacred. sacred than me time. And Third Love's limited edition summer styles are designed with tropical inspired colors, vacation ready designs and breezy feelings that whisk you away to your own personal paradise.
1: This is the right time. The year for that.
0: Yeah, it's me time, baby. Just wrapping it back around. Oh, also watching every show in the Bachelor franchise. Okay. Yeah, that's also me time. Actually, it's me and Drew time. Drew and I watch all of the Bachelor shows and we bet on them for every episode. <laughs> We're like, this
1: sounds so Carrie and Drew.
0: (laughs) This person's going to get kicked off. And if I'm right, you have to put $5 in our honeymoon fund. And then he's like, okay, I think they're going to stay. But she's going to say that this guy's here for the wrong reasons. And if I'm right, you have to put $5 in the honeymoon fund. When I
1: came here tonight, Drew and Carrie were telling me this story about betting (laughs) how many packages (laughs) Carrie had received from the post office (laughs) and how many of them had a, they had to debate over how to tell this story. What was the purpose of the box? So how many boxes were purposefully devoted to books and how many books total were there? Drew ended up being spot on. Oh
0: my God, seven boxes with 12 books. Incredible. <laughs> That's crazy. Anyway, I had to put $10 in our honeymoon fund as a result. It's
1: always interesting to hear these stories. Well... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you get to spend some me time and some me and Drew time doing all these things and that you enjoy your 3rd Love bras. And oh my God, I have mentioned before, Cara's got some 3rd Love bras as well. And look, they fit well because 3rd Love has the Fit Finder quiz. Mm-hmm. They don't have the, you know, those little tags that hang off Ugh, the back. the worst. Which I will often cut off for my wife or like tuck underneath, like, hold on, like, I yep, see the tag. I see it. But no, it's not even there because it's, it's not printed there. It's just right. It's printed on it. S- so smart. Hello. No slip straps. Yep. Smart.
0: Oh yeah, the straps, baby. If you don't know about me and these straps, these straps and I are in love. It's like uh like an accordion, you know, or a fan mm-hmm. folded up on your shoulder. Just stays there. It doesn't keep running down. And They have a perfect piece for any occasion, even if the occasion is a relaxing day at home watching The Bachelor and betting on it.
1: So Third Love should be your go-to destination for comfortable and quality everyday essentials.
0: Find your new favorite everyday essentials from their all-new Feather Lace Collection to their number one 24-7 TM Classic T-Shirt Bra.
1: They got very official all of a sudden.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get more into ASMR. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, they stand behind their products, and if you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free.
0: You deserve some TLC. That's Third Love Comfort. So go to thirdlove.com slash ono right now to get 20% off your first purchase.
1: Well, that's thirdlove.com slash ono for 20% off today. Jimmy oh, you're right, Church? That, that's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Church, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got you here, Carrie. Well, yes. actually, no, you got me here.
0: Yes. Yes, Lucian, shush, shush. I see you wanting to He's talk, trying but trying to talk. May not. Hold it. You oh. may not.
1: Because we've got to talk about Squarespace.
0: That's right. Oh, a quick word from our friends at Squarespace.
1: It doesn't matter what you are trying to do. Let's say. Let's say you want to start a new church. Yeah. Some people do that. Yeah. Guess what? You're going to you're going to need an online presence.
0: Absolutely. Where are you going to put your commandments if you don't have a website? Sorry. Think about it, God.
1: This is the 21st century. We don't go around putting flyers under windshield wipers. Mm-hmm. We Who se- would do that. We <laughs> Tony Lama. But we <laughs> we set up websites and we tell people Go to blah, 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 blah dot com, yes. dot net, dot org, dot horse.
0: Yes, exactly. Oh, I like the sound of that last one. And you know, a dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. I've said it before. I'll say it again.
1: That poor dream. Get I didn't
0: know. Get it a it's website. Been years now that this poor dream has needed a website Make it a reality with Squarespace.
1: And it'll become real when you blog or publish content, when you promote your physical or online business, when you announce an upcoming event or a special project. That's when it becomes real.
0: And listen, Squarespace gives you access to beautiful templates created by world-class designers.
1: It has powerful e-commerce functionality.
0: They have a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions. And they have 24-7 stevie award winning customer support
1: that's right and we've talked about this before you go to squarespace you get started like you can actually start building your site without paying a dime
0: yep imagine if you got to walk into disneyland and walk around and they were like we're not make you pay $130. <laughs> Why don't you walk around, see if you like the joint. If you do, come back, get your ticket. We trust you. Yeah, right. That's Squarespace. That's what's
1: happening here. Yeah. yeah, you get to try out the tools, make sure it makes sense to you and that you like all your selections and templates and you will. And when you do that, make sure to check out squarespace.com slash oh no, O-H-N-O for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, then you use the offer code Oh, no, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. And now back to Lucian.
0: I, I want to hear more about like the activist work that Gray Faction does, but I just have to name drop this. My cousins went to McMartin Preschool... And they, you're both, you're both nodding in shock uh, for Uh, those (laughs) there. Their mouths are gaping. They're waving their hands. They're like, oh my God. I realized
1: like, yeah, people wouldn't hear, (laughs) wouldn't hear my mouth being open.
0: Yeah. So it was a couple of years before the big scandal happened. And I asked my mom about this and she said, yeah, you know, they didn't experience anything weird. And I asked her the years, and like I say, it was a couple years before. And she said, yeah, but, you know, it was before all that. And I was like, okay, yes, it was a couple years before, but was there a sudden point where the McMartins just decided, like, we're Satanists (laughs) now. Now we abuse children in underground tunnels, in massive rituals, and, you know, bring giraffes under there and stuff. But I just went there for the first time. I went to the site of the McMartin Preschool, and it is now a laundromat.
2: Oh. oh, yeah, yeah. No, they they were bulldozing it at the time. Ted Gunderson, former FBI guy, was digging out the tunnels. He uh, he bought like a month of time just to, to do that. But yeah. no, I've, I've never been there. One of my uh, longtime Grey Faction comrades, either Sarah or Shalise, sorry for not remembering which one, got me a McMartin preschool class of 83 t-shirt, which is, you know, Whoa. depending on where you wear it, that's considered really tasteless. I love it.
0: <laughs> is it real? No, it can't be.
2: It's, nah, it's, it's,
0: it's humorous. Uh, you know what? It would be too small. <laughs> but that is also the year I was born. So, okay, so what does Grey Faction do to, uh, to counter all of this uh, pseudoscience, as you put it?
2: It's really difficult. Uh, this is one of the more difficult uh, approaches because, you know, it, it is really trying to confront some entrenched ideas misinterpretations of psychiatry and science that are prevalent in culture. And the Satanic Temple itself has these kinds of protest standards in which we don't like to do things that are merely meant to raise consciousness, because so many activists only do that now and Mm -hmm. don't put anything substantial behind their protests. And people have lost a sense of the difference between protest and activism where they just kind of preference protest where they go out, wave signs and uh, grandstand their outrage, oftentimes without any uh, proposal as to how to do things better or any demands being made. Kind of the big made.
0: criticism of the Occupy movement was basically that.
2: Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I have criticisms of the uh, of the March for Science and the the Women's March just based mm-hmm. on the fact, that, and not because I'm anti-science or anti-woman, but it's just... That you had people going Though out you waving signs and they weren't asking for anything specifically. So by the next day, no politicians mm-hmm. are called to account and, and, yep. and respond to any of this. There were no petitions being put forward. There was no model legislation being imposed. Hmm. So it was just easy for people to go out, feel like they got something done And and there's something to be said for that. You you build up with some momentum, you build up some energy, but you need to do something. It's a part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, with Grey Faction, it's very difficult because sometimes we don't know what else to do but let people know that this is happening. So Mm -hmm. a lot of what we do is investigate these things, like uh, issue reports about them, try to make people aware of how insane this particular fringe segment, particularly the ISSTD, which I mentioned, the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, are, and we've been writing letters to licensing boards and other consumer commissions in different states trying to prevent the ISSTD from being allowed to give out continuing education units at their conferences. Ah, Because they, uh, they give out continuing education units when they're doing lectures talking about Illuminati mind control,
1: satanic ritual abuse. You you attend this lecture as a nurse or practitioner or therapist, and now you've taken care of this important licensing requirement that you continue to educate yourself.
2: Right. And and we've also gone to a lot of different licensing boards just reporting some of the insane ideas being propagated by some of the people they're licensing. Because if you take a, a reading of some of the standards that uh, the professionals have, that we take, they really don't have any rights to propagate conspiracy theories under the authority of their licensing. Um, So far, we haven't had much luck in getting the licensing boards to agree, and I think that's simply out of laziness. Uh, They don't typically deal with this. They typically don't respond to complaints about therapists or Mm -hmm. clinical psychologists unless unless they're fucking a client that seems Mm. to be the only thing they're interested in right now and i think what it will take is just getting enough outrage honestly getting more and more people to recognize what's wrong with what's going on here and it becoming more and more clear that they can't simply ignore these complaints because people are paying
1: attention and that's what we're working on. So you haven't seen anybody actually lose their license because of this malpractice or even because of this public well, we, stance? Well, had,
2: we had some bit of luck in Canada. The United States has been terrible. I sent Carrie a whole report I had written up some years ago about a woman named Ellen Lachter, who was a chair of uh, the ISSTD's own Ritual Abuse Mind Control Special Interest Group, who had consulted with a woman... Who ultimately murdered her own eight-year-old autistic child because she felt that he wasn't autistic that actually what appeared to be autism was a manifestation of the trauma he had suffered at the hands of unseen Satanists and she was very very delusional very deranged uh, by her own admission she hadn't observed these Satanists abusing this child and she had been with the child essentially his entire life but still she claimed that at the time she was killing him, that uh, she was preserving him from further abuse at the hands of a satanic cult. And to us, the outrage was is that she had sought the help of professionals
1: mm-hmm. and
2: that one of those professionals was Ellen Lacter, who openly propagates these notions of satanic ritual abuse and other really delusional, unhinged ideas. And our thinking was that perhaps... If she had found competent professional help, somebody might have tried to disabuse her of her illusions before mm-hmm. she murdered her kid and that Ellen Lacter should be called to account for that. Anyways, we set the, sent this very uh, well-documented and detailed report to California, uh, the California Board of uh, Consumer Affairs or whatever it is that, that deals with these types of things, outlining all the deranged ideas that... Ellen Lacter advocates for and that she gives lectures about and everything. About nine months later, they sent us an unsigned letter that said uh, they did, no rules were violated and we can essentially fuck off. And that was about it. But in Canada, wow. there is a woman named Alison Miller who was also propagating these very bizarre ideas of satanic ritual abuse I think also Illuminati witchcraft and just all this various conspiracist mythologies really unhinged and over the top. And to their credit, in Canada, they said they were going to open up an investigation. They're going to have some kind of hearing or whatever. But instead of going through that, Alison Miller just abdicated her license and said she was yeah she was going to step down and step away all the while getting very angry and saying it had nothing to do with what we had done.
1: But that, that pressure was integral to that outcome, so that's great. Uh, it
2: seems like it looked as though that was it, uh, all it was. But <laughs>
1: <Yeah. Wow. laughs> that's what, what caused her to, to give up her license. I'm curious, uh, where do you go for scientific information to kind of fuel the gray faction's efforts? Do you work with any particular researchers or specialists? There
2: there have been a lot of journal articles. There's a lot of discussion. The memory issue has been scientifically established for a long time now. There's a, a false controversy surrounding it, this idea that the notion of false memories is a, a very tenuous idea or that it's impossible to create false memories of trauma, which is shown to be absolutely false. You, you can have false memories of trauma. And like I've talked to people uh, personally, I've done a lot of interviews with people who've been subject to this kind of therapy. A lot of them retractors who came to realize they held false memories of satanic abuse that never happened. You know, some people who still believe that these things are taking place when I, when I was unknown and still able to go to conferences for these people and, talked talk about these things it was very clear, you know, that people who had false memories of being abducted by aliens, you know, they, sure. they, 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 could hold very traumatic memories of this. And in fact, they did yeah. a study at Harvard, uh, Richard McNally and his, his group, they did, they were testing the psychophysiological responding and script driven imagery, uh, for people who had, undergone real verifiable traumas, like, say, wartime trauma, and people who had false memory traumas. And and these particularly were traumatic memories of alien abduction. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, the first thing we have to accept here is that the alien abduction traumas are fake memories. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There wasn't, like, real investigation as to whether
1: there was evidence that these people were kidnapped by aliens. But at least you have to pick your narrative. You know, most people either believe in aliens or they believe in sickness.
2: But but just starting out, admitting that, I I just believe that people weren't abducted by aliens, right? And that these are false memories. We'll set that as uh, a given
0: for this conversation.
2: Right. Yeah, that's the given there. They were measuring, like, uh, you know, electrical resistance and other physiological markers of trauma, and finding that people who were reading these kinds of scripts that would talk about their war crime trauma or whatever had identical psychophysiological responses to recalling that kind of trauma as people recalling these narratives of alien abduction. So mm-hmm. if you have traumatic false memories, it will act like a real trauma. Right? Yeah, that, and that I, says I, something
1: I, really significant that it, right. it, it, no, it, it evokes does. the same bodily responses. Right. It's and and that, that
2: makes it all the more important that we understand this issue because it's not benign, you know, yeah. to have people recalling these memories. They, they like to make this argument, you know, people in the ISSTD like, oh, we're we're just kind of working with what the clients give us. And the truth doesn't right. really matter, you know, mm. and the the kind of narrative everybody's giving them just happens to be, you know, something they uh they've built their practice around right like Mm -hmm. it's no coincidence that people who are obsessed with alien abduction always you know seem to get people to recall those narratives and they put them under hypnosis you know and the isstd therapists aren't innocent in the fact that you know they just happen to get all these people giving them narratives of satanic ritual abuse or illuminati crimes or whatever else but we have to realize that giving people this kind of autobiographical narrative is extremely harmful and you can't say that it's just a narrative that helps them to work through whatever their real problems are and that there's no harm in somehow you know validating these narratives even if they're not true because it is harmful and you know i think that's a a very important element to realize there but like to the question of what kind of studies and what kind of research just the body of work that you can see from both sides too. I don't want people to think I just look at one side of this and have taken that but I can see the deficiencies in the ISSTD's research and their deficiencies are glaring and many to the point where it's hard to believe that they even believe the kind of ideas they're putting forward mm-hmm. at the point where you're claiming that people can have hundreds or more of discrete personalities that you're bringing forth in therapeutic sessions, and yet there's no real longitudinal, long term studies tracking the lives of these personalities or even having somebody. I mean, why wouldn't you have somebody in a couple years later who had a couple hundred personalities and seeing if you can even get those personalities to be recalled with any real fidelity? You know, Mm -hmm. to see if they've progressed, you know, there's this idea that somebody can have uh, all these personalities of different ages or whatever. And yet I never see a journal article saying we followed up with this personality years later to see where it's at. I mean, Mm -hmm. it seems very obvious to me that people go into the office, uh, you know, the therapeutic context in this setting where they're recalling these things. And it seems to me they're probably coming up with these narratives on the fly, and nobody's doing anything to figure out anything otherwise and just like research regarding alien abduction uh you'll see a lot of retrospective analysis Mm -hmm. you know retrospective surveys where isstd researchers as i think they you know is kind of a misnomer but they would call themselves they'll take people who believe already that they had recovered memories of abuse They'll ask them a series of questions about the nature of that abuse or whatever else. Then they'll quantify it, make it sound very science-y and say that, well, this proves that this phenomena is real. And I've juxtaposed this with surveys done by ufologists who study alien abduction and they'll they'll do the same thing. Like, you know, has this ever happened to you in the middle of the night? You know, just multiple choice, like uh, about the the form their alien abduction has taken. And then they'll say, like, well, 69% of respondents picked B over, over A through E. And therefore, this is very significant. It's just not. It's just not. Mm-hmm. That, 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 uh, that's a way of making it look like you have something uh, without having anything at all. And now what's really popular is to take brain scans and say, well, look at this. People with dissociative identity disorder or repressed memories have these unique kind of uh, neurological markers in their, in their uh, fMRI or whatever that shows that this is a real phenomenon. And to me, nothing could be more dishonest, because if they think that that's any part of the argument, they, are, uh, they have no place being in this argument at all, because it's not really a question of whether dissociative identity disorder exists. For people who feel that they have it or people who suffer it, it's very real. But the question is, where did it come from? Is it of the sociocognitive model? Is it kind of a, a role that they've been placed into? And that's not to say they're acting, but it's to say that it's given them a context to express their malaise, right? Um, right, and I like talked
0: hypnosis to, or, um, right, or right. possession. Right.
2: Right. Or is it the trauma model, right? Did they experience a series of traumas in their youth that were repressed and therefore caused them to have DID? I I look at things from the socio-cognitive model. You know, the ISSTD supports supports the trauma model, and brain scans do absolutely nothing to tell us the origins of this condition. And I do think You know, that a lot of the people advocating for the proof of these uh, of of these brain scans, uh, they know better. You know, they're just simply being dishonest. And it's a dishonesty that carries over, I think, to that whole fiasco we saw recently with New York magazine, where instead of confronting the problematic issues with the recovered memory theory, uh, they instead attack the notion of false memories without even discussing the bizarre notions that have been manifested through recovered memory therapies regarding satanic ritual abuse or whatever else.
0: Yeah, it seems like a common tactic is also to reduce it to why would this patient be lying? Right. Why would this patient adopt a narrative that's actually very hard to live through? And I always think, well, people decide they have cancer when they don't. People decide all sorts of things that are painful to live through, but they just seem to make sense to them. We don't only pick our truths based on whether they're nice. Well, it's
2: so ludicrously dishonest, though. They then put it on the client, like we're accusing the client of lying Mm -hmm. while as though we're just attacking the client, where, you know, in my mind, the client is being abused by the therapy. If you're you're convincing somebody who comes into your office that they have a whole history of abuse that they've never suffered, and oftentimes this abuse, these narratives of abuse are attached to their friends and family. It was tragic when I went to some of these conferences to hear people talking about how they thought they had a loving family and then they learned in the course of therapy that they were intergenerational satanists who had abused them all along and now you're seeing them in these cult-like support groups and they've cut themselves off from the family network that probably actually really did love and care for them like i said there's nothing benign about this at all and to say that our approach to this is an assault upon uh, the people being abused by the by the therapies is, is an outrage.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's abusive, but it does bring to mind another question, which is. Can't abuse sometimes itself be unintentional? And I'm wondering if Mm. some of these recovered memory therapists probably think that what they're doing is true, right? They probably think this is real and that they're helping these people. It's sort of, it becomes sort of a stack of, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know who to blame. It just, the Mm. blame trail goes back into infinity, probably back to Freud. And where, where does the buck stop?
2: It's hard to say some of some of the prominent characters I see in the ISSTD, uh, I feel are irredeemably dishonest. And I've, I've grown to really loathe them, I have to mm-hmm. admit, uh, because when I see somebody like Michael Salter, um, mm-hmm. who was also head of the Ritual Abuse Mind Control Special Interest Group,
1: yeah.
2: intentionally covering up. His beliefs, you know, mm-hmm. not openly speaking about his beliefs in satanic ritual abuse. And in fact, you know, Gray Faction uh, was in receipt of a bunch of kind of internal discussions from the ISSTD where they've decided now to rename their ritual abuse mind control special interest group uh, to kind of conceal their conspiracist beliefs from review boards uh, for fear of gray faction, which I'm I'm proud to say, because uh, I have
0: openly said it's because of you by name.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm proud of that. But uh, (laughs) it was because, you know, we've been reaching out to the boards that approve continuing education units, and the one that had approved them for continuing education units, asked them to stop doing mind control lectures. But uh, outrageously enough, They just told their membership and their speakers that they needed to keep mind control out of the titles of the lectures, but they could still talk about whatever they want. And when I see that kind of dishonesty, I get really angry. But then you have guys like Neil Brick in the ISSTD, who's a therapist in Massachusetts, and he seems like he's legitimately deranged. This guy talks about how he recovered memories of being this Illuminati super soldier And he and Alan Lachter are really uh, upset by the notion that the ISSTD would change the name of the Ritual Abuse Mind Control Special Interest Group because they feel like this is a real issue and that people need to be made aware of this conspiracy. And I feel like I disagree with everything they're saying, but at least they seem to believe in it, right? At least they seem to think it's defensible. At least they seem to think that they have the evidence for this and that it should be put out there. I really hate the guys who are like, all right, let's let's keep quiet about this, but still do what we're doing, because that feels a lot more to me like it's just a a failure to admit they're wrong when they know they are and keep their career kind of going forward, uh, regardless of who it hurts.
0: Mm hmm. So uh, two of the people we've recently reported on are people I think you're pretty familiar with, Bob Larson and Jerry Mungazzi. Um, mm-hmm. Have you run into them? I know you've run into them with Grave Action's work. Uh, what, what comes to your mind when you hear those two names?
2: Well, possession. And possession, I think, is not far off from the question of dissociative identity disorder. And you will see people, you know, in the ISSTD camp. There's a guy, Randy Lil' Knob Knoblet out of Texas, who was directly quoted saying that uh, dissociative identity disorder is just kind of the Western culture name for possession states. And I think that's more accurate than they would care to admit. And in fact, the rise in popularity of the idea of multiple personality disorder is just what, you know, dissociative identity disorder used to be called. In the course of Satanic Panic, they renamed it to kind of kind of try to Uh, remove it from that, that moral panic that kind of served to discredit it for some time. It's kind of dangerous for them, I think, to draw that association because, you know, people who claim to be possessed or feel that they're possessed, uh, aren't, aren't willing necessarily to say that they suffered a a series of abuses in their childhood that they had forgotten. Right. Mm -hmm. And possession is one of those things also where I don't think people who feel that they are possessed are lying about it either. You know, right. it's also something in the socio-cognitive model where they have a framework, a pre-existing one. It's, there's a, a good deal of role enactment, uh, you know, on the unconscious level, not to say acting, not to say pretending. But uh, it's certainly a way in which people can express their melees based upon a certain map set forward for them by the culture that they're in. Right. And I think understanding possession can help you understand better the notion of dissociative identity disorder. And I think there's more similarities between guys like Bob Larson, people in the ISSTD than they would realize. And I think that kind of gray area and overlap would be Mugazi. Is that how he's pronounced it? Yeah, Yeah, Mugazi. Yeah. Because Mugazi, I think, was actually part of the ISSTD, you know, dealing with both DID. He won an award from them. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, but he he works uh, but he works on both DID and possession. In some right. some of them view these as distinct from one another, and others view them as just kind of one and the same and overlapping. And, for any uh, of,
1: for any of our listeners who may not remember the name Jerry Mungodzi, that was the therapist that we talked about who had us color in our brains as paper diagrams with crayons, and then he diagnosed us based on the colors that we chose to fill in the maps of our brains
2: now when he asked you to do this were were you just in in your own environment with your own crayons
1: or he brought us boxes
2: of crayons in his office office. i would have been curious as if the crayons were
1: ordered in any color scheme in the box you think that would okay it was was
0: a big uh yeah they weren't uh they were jumbled
1: box Certainly more colors were available. You know, like when I would go searching for a particular color, sometimes I had to sift through a little bit, but there were a lot of crayons.
2: Okay. I would think that possibly even the color of the room and other factors would might have some kind of effect on what color you'd choose mm. for, for coloring the brain. And I I... I Highly doubt he's explored any of those things.
0: Oh, my goodness. It's so uncontrolled, Lucian, in every way. He's even said in interviews, he's just admitted that green is the possession color and brown is the lesbian color. It's just like, yeah, anyone could just have listened to one of your interviews and then come into your office and use that color and you'd say, ah, Clearly and a lesbo or whatever. I had,
1: I had a lot of pink and some rainbow Clearly colors in my brain. Clearly a wrong brain, that one. <laughs> yeah. He thought that I was gay because, I, it's pretty clear, I had put a lot of rainbow-like colors and pink in my brain. Oh, and, and I had filled out the shape of a phallus. That's right. That's important. I shouldn't leave that out. Um, have, have you had any personal interaction with Bob? Has, uh, has he tried to confront you or has he made commentary about you?
2: He has made commentary about us. I don't even quite remember what that commentary was. And I don't know to what degree I acknowledged it because, you know, in uh, the Satanic Temple, there's differing feelings about what's funny and what isn't when it comes to Satanic (laughs) Panic material. And some people have a lot more affection. That's a fine line. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of people who have a lot more affection for Bob Larson than I ever could. Um Mm. I I I do not think he was benign. I do not think he's funny. I do not have any sympathy for him. I do, do not like that man.
1: Do you think he's sincere?
2: I think he's I think that's always a difficult question for any <laughs> of these guys because I referred earlier to the former FBI man who dug up the tunnels at McMartin and uh his name was Ted Gunderson and I think uh, some kind of biography of him Needs to be done. I, t- I talked about writing one with a, a friend, journalist of mine, uh, Lenny Flatley. Um, maybe we'll get to that sometime because I requested his FBI file after he died, and there's quite a story there. You know. Oh, he,
0: cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He he actually was was high ranking like before he died. I wasn't sure. I thought, okay, this guy was probably mopping the floors and you know, in D.C. and and it made a big. Conflated it into something it wasn't. But no, he had direct correspondence with Hoover all the way up to like Webster, I think, and oh, wow. was a special agent in charge. And it really made you wonder about the legitimacy of a lot of his investigations, you know, especially he had, uh, he was very much part of the Red Scare.
1: You know, and, uh, and you, you had. Oh, out. Yeah. oh, interesting to contemplate yeah. maybe a continuity between that particular Yeah, yeah, right hunt. yeah.
2: And it didn't seem like there was a turning point where he went insane. Like, he was insane as soon as he left the FBI and migrated mm-hmm. over to, to private investigation, was finding Satanists everywhere. And he was finding communists everywhere during his time in the FBI and was part of, uh, you know, investigating Martin Luther King and stuff like that. So I feel like there's a, a oh, real. Wow a real story that kind of cuts to the heart of conspiracist American culture to be told and with... Uh,
1: it's amazing how the yeah. cause celeb of one person can become a national obsession.
2: Yeah, but but before this digression gets to the point where people are like, what the hell does that have to do with anything he said? <laughs> it was uh before Ted Gunderson died, I, I had felt he was a real con man. Like that mm-hmm. all he would... That his whole thing was just going around doing lectures, talking about Satanists, getting paid for it. And he would always have these ladies around him who were supposed to be mind-controlled and there's kind of tales that he was uh trying to get sex from them or or whatever okay and it it seemed like he was running his own weird kind of like culty environment type thing and and Mm. i called him you know i spoke to him a couple times before he died in like 2012 or something like that so i had some discussions with him and in the course of actually talking with him you know he'd say these ludicrous things And looking into his past at the time I got his FBI file in, he had also done some things that were very counterproductive, I think, to his ends if he didn't actually believe in them. But at the same time, he was saying and doing things that he knew weren't true also. And it was like kind of through Ted Gunderson that I kind of gave up in some cases on trying to parse out whether they're a con man or whether they're absolutely delusional because Mm -hmm. I think it's not always clear. I think there's an interplay, you know, between uh, just deception and self-deception, you know, Mm -hmm. and that people can really invest themselves in a deceptive narrative to the point where they engage in enough thought avoidance and uh, cognitive dissonance and justification Mm -hmm. that they become a believer, you know, and they're willing to lie a, a lot of times, I think, to support a greater truth. And I would see that also with people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. I I went to support groups for people who claim to have been abducted by aliens just to talk to them and understand where they were coming from. And it was interesting to me to talk to some people and they would start describing standard sleep paralysis, you know. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't push back too hard, but I would tell them, you know, I would say like, well, you know, if you talk to a skeptic, they would tell you, and then I would start <laughs> not telling Not that you them. are
0: right now. Right, right,
2: <laughs> not necessarily right, but I would start. I would start telling them these things, and it was interesting to me to feel like they were giving me a true account of their experience at first. But when there was pushback, they were clearly willing to lie mm-hmm. uh, to 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 avoid having to confront that cognitive dissonance. And then I would start hearing stories about the better evidence, you know. Like, this one guy started telling me, after he described sleep paralysis, and I started explaining this to him, he then said, well, you know, they left behind this kind of glowing slime on the surfaces. And, like, I can't speak about it because some secret group of scientists or whatever are still investigating this. And, like, I'm not... you know, you said and I you can't just dis- spoke about it. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, and then I was thinking, like, okay, well, that's kind of full of shit, isn't it? And why wouldn't you lead with that one rather than, you know? <laughs> that's always my question,
0: yeah. <laughs> right. And someone yeah. drops some huge thing at the end there, yeah. So, okay. So you've talked to a bunch of people who have gone through recovered memory therapy or uh, went to a therapist who diagnosed them with DID and now believes that they don't have it. Is it your impression that most of those people did come to believe they had some other diagnosis that better explained their experience? Or did they come into these uh, therapeutic settings with sort of banal complaints and came out with much more severe complaints?
2: Well, distressingly enough to me, the retractors who are willing to talk to me and that I've talked to, most of them went in with benign problems to begin with. You know, okay. I, I spoke to one who went to uh, Colin Ross, who's a, a real over-the-top mm-hmm. quack and should be in prison, I think. He's got a body count behind him, mm-hmm. but he's also a past president of the ISSTD. Uh, they still take him seriously. He's always there annually. And I was speaking Often to one of his retractors.
0: Expert,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. She had originally gone to him because she was trying to extend... Her medical leave from work because she was working had a child and was going to school at the same time and uh, she was under a lot of stress and she had something completely unrelated to some kind of psychiatric issue but she unfortunately got caught up with Ross who uh, diagnosed her with multiple personalities ended up grossly over medicating her she became an inpatient really damaged her family relationships and her overall life And that's kind of common, I think, for the retractor stories I hear. And the reason that's really disturbing to me is I think that people with more serious issues, like, say, rapid cycling bipolar disorder uh, and being taught that this is a byproduct of having been abused uh, sexually as children in ways they never knew about but only know about now uh, is horrific to me because it indicates to me that you know, I, I assume that's happening quite a bit, but these people just might be less likely to ever be retractors or to ever see the error in the therapy that they had suffered. Mm. And, and I think that's, you know, just goes back to I uh, can't express enough how outrageous it is that this still goes on and that it's still uh, sanctioned by and the you profession. N-
0: Yeah. And then you're also never getting to the root of whatever the real complaint was. Because I I have talked to people who were diagnosed with DID, later came to uh, find hope and therapeutic help in a borderline diagnosis. Which is at least you know a, a a more scientific diagnosis and and so when they were presenting as alters they were flooding they were they were having these enormous emotional reactions that were completely intolerable hmm. and when handed this narrative well you're becoming this other person that was in the moment a helpful way to avoid that pain and become someone else but it's still, uh, in their minds, was still an avoidance technique. And as we know from all of behavioral science, avoidance deepens your problems and adds new problems to deal with instead of ever getting to the root. And yeah, so so do you think, uh, have you talked to anyone like I've talked to, anyone who had borderline or bipolar and now they're like, ah, now I understand where this was really coming from?
2: I don't think so, and that's that's uh, oh,
0: okay.
2: that. That's why I say it's really distressing because I feel like the yeah. people who are more likely to realize that this was bullshit are people who, you know, went in for these benign problems and are probably uh, more likely to recall that their mm. problems were benign when they went in. You know, mm. once they get off the medication oh, right, or whatever. Right, right. Think of how convincing it can be if you have extreme fluctuating emotional states when you have a therapist asking you to name those specific states. And then, you know, every time you, you revisit that, it's going to reaffirm that for you, right? But think of the notion for a moment that you have repressed memories of abuse that are sequestered to a certain part of your mind that fracture off into different personalities. That's one thing. But why would those different states, even if they may just manifest themselves intermittently and have different kind of emotional characteristics, why would they name themselves something different from what the outside environment is referring to them? Mm. It's as though this, these names are supposed to have some intrinsic meaning, right? Mm. Like if I'm to pop into consciousness all of a sudden and everybody's calling me Lucian, why would I say, no, I'm Bill? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, clearly this is being made up in the therapeutic environment, in the therapeutic setting. And this, this is yet just another one of those basic things that you don't see covered in the literature from the perspective of those who advocate for the trauma model of dissociative identity disorder, along with, like I said, no real follow-up on these personalities, especially, you know, somebody has hundreds of them, whether they whether they're maintained or whatever else, there's just such a lack of any real thoughtful research that would validate any of this. And now, like I've said, of course, they're just they they feel that if they just assault the idea of false memories enough and claim that it's part of an agenda to deny that abuse happens, then they're in the clear.
0: So what can people do to change all this? People are listening and are like, oh, my God, this is a huge problem. I had no idea about is there anything they can do to support Gray Faction's work?
2: Yeah, just check out gray, grayfaction.org. And as mentioned earlier, it's gray with an E. And uh, <laughs> grayfaction.org kind of keeps people up to date on whether we're doing letter writing campaigns or petitions or or whatever, and just becoming aware of the issues more and more too. Uh,
0: Raise that awareness.
2: Yeah, no, in this in this case, that's, that, that is really a thing because everybody knows the narrative of uh repressed memories right and that's also what makes it so ludicrous this idea that you know there's no leading in these sessions when people ask oh is do you think there's anything in your past that may have contributed to this and it's like we 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 know where that's going right you can't say that any of this isn't leading Hmm. to begin with but uh Previously, when the False Memory Syndrome Foundation uh, still existed and before the Satanic Temple existed, uh, there was a real reticence to confront, you know, the bizarre narratives of Satanic ritual abuse and alien abduction, even on our side of the argument, the skeptical side, because they like to confront the scientific claims and leave the crazy shit out of it, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. and you know, I never went for that because I feel like lay people can better understand that these claims of satanic ritual abuse, alien abduction, they're, they're insane. And they're, they, can, they know without being, you know, PhDs, that if some fundamental theory of your therapy is leading you to these beliefs, there's something wrong with your theory. Right. So we, we do everything to kind of exploit that and show people like, OK, if you're getting from A to B uh, to, to say that uh, there's a satanic conspiracy in the same way you're getting from A to B to say that uh, that this person has DID, there's something wrong there. You know, and you need to, to to look at what's going on. You know, there was, you know, in the false argument syndrome, from
0: absurdity. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, The the False Memory Syndrome Foundation tactic was always, like I said, to do the journal articles and everything. But at this point, that science is settled. Like I said, it's a cultural battle now. It's just a battle of getting people to realize what organizations like the ISSTD are about, to get people upset about that, and to demand that these licensing boards and other oversight agencies recognize this and stop it from happening.
0: Okay, I have a few questions for you, Lucian, that I've never gotten to ask you. Uh Uh-oh. But Ross, did you have anything else about Great Faction you wanted to ask?
1: No, no, I'll, I'll let you go.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, solution. Okay, real quick. Things I've never gotten to ask you. What safeguards have you put into TST to make sure you don't go off the rails and become a cult leader? Big sweat He's drinking he, coffee, he, folks. He, yeah, he's, he's taking not a, a drink.
1: He's, he's <laughs> no, I don't drink coffee. <laughs> It's oh, teed.
0: fuck, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I,
1: I had you. no
0: idea that would be the thing in this conversation that would get such a rise out of you. Okay. <laughs> so,
2: so safeguards against being a cult. Well, I mean, one of those safeguards is, like I was saying about Grey Faction, like we don't, allow, we don't ask anybody to take anything upon authority, you know, uh, uh, exclusive yeah. to having evidence for it. We don't ask people to sign on to, you know, the positions that Gray Faction takes or any others for that matter. And we also, you know, never ask people to not affiliate with any other people, right? We don't have that kind of structure in place where it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're not with us anymore. And therefore, nobody can talk to you. We've had people leave the Satanic Temple in outrage and still continue on with friendships with other people in the Satanic Temple you know, as acrimonious as the uh, relationships with other people might be or anything like that. And just, you know, I think every bit of our philosophy runs against that kind of insular cult like thinking. You know, <laughs> we're very much about free inquiry and exploration and,
1: you know it's kind of written ju- into your seven yeah, fundamental yeah, tenets. Right,
2: exactly. It's 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 in the code, right? I, I'm yeah.
1: curious, did you I assume you at least co wrote those tenets? Are those your creation? Yeah, Malcolm and I co authored those tenets, correct. Okay. Which can be found at the satanic temple.com.
2: Right. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a there's been criticisms about our tenets about how they're kind of like too humanistic and too uh, too unobjectionable and uh, <laughs> it, it, not, not obscure and, uh, and unique enough to be considered, you know, satanic. But if we're to follow a philosophy, I think, of free inquiry and using science as an arbiter of truth claims to find the best way to order our ethics and and conceive of the common good, there's going to come to be a convergence point, right? Where there's Mm -hmm. going to be, hopefully, some kind of general consensus about what those ethics are. We shouldn't shy away from that. And that's another way, I think, in which you know, the Satanic Temple can't become a cult is that we do demand evidence for any of the things we put forward and, and and put forward as our ethics. And, you know, written into our tenets is a tenet that pretty much states that the tenets are open to revision based upon, based upon evidence. and Can someone
0: overrule you?
2: Uh, in in what way? Like, on page... <laughs> like, uh, like, like okay, let's...
0: Of, just knowing that the human brain is so fallible, and I don't expect this to happen, but what if you wake up one morning and you're like, no, actually, I take it back, I am God. Is there anybody who can say, oopsie doodle, Lucian's out to lunch, He's uh, he's sidelined now?
2: Well, I think ultimately, we would like to have some kind of board structure that would do that. And right now, we have a similar kind of board structure, but more... But if you look at the legal construct of the Satanic Temple, it's kind of an honor system because at the end of it, you know, Malcolm and I own it. So mm. we have ultimate veto power over anything, but we also don't claim voting rights when we have a council that uh, uh, votes upon things that chapters oh. can or can't do
1: and things like that. Now's your so chance we, to declare yourself God. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So, uh,
0: on our podcast, we,
2: <laughs> no, so, so I guess that's the answer, you know. Like, uh, I'll take like it. ostensibly on paper, you know, we're owners, but we run it on the uh, uh, you know, on this board structure. But we have to account for the fact that we're going to pass on, right? And we don't want to pass on autocratic well, control. well are we you? Though?
1: Had... Oh, yeah, <laughs> See? Uh, I'm su- I'm surprised I haven't yet. <laughs> um, how How many chapters do you have? How does one find their local satanic temple?
2: Oh go to the satanic dot com and there's a there's a part on the drop down menu that shows you where all the active chapters are now and I don't even know what that number is right now no okay. worldwide we have a good number of of chapters and Currently, we have a bunch of interest out of Spain, because Spain apparently just got uh, the Hail Satan documentary.
1: Ooh, there's one in Santa Cruz, California. That's my hometown. Hey. There's a lot of little blue uh, dots on the map. Oh, and one in the United Kingdom. Okay.
0: I mean, Satan's right in the name. Satan Cruz.
1: Has anyone ever tried to exercise you as Bob Larson got a hold of you? Because if, if not, if you ever need one, we're trained in his methods. <laughs>
2: Not—nobody's come up to me personally and tried to lay hands on me or uh, or, or anything like that. And that wouldn't go well, I have to <laughs> say. But uh, we've done a lot of One's events. One's body
0: is inviolable.
2: Yeah, yeah, but we, we've done a lot of events where Catholic protesters have shown up and have thrown holy water and cast spells and things cast, like that. Literally
1: cast aspersions on you.
2: Cast spells, Refreshing. you know, or—, or Wow. Or whatever you want. I mean, what, what else is it when they do that? Amazing.
0: Okay, I have two more questions. One, what is the least accurate thing on your Wikipedia page?
2: Mm. Oh, I haven't looked. I've, don't get me started on that. I'm not going to start looking at that. That's, a, <laughs> that's just, a, you know, a downward spiral and the frustration and outrage.
0: <laughs> okay, I have but not you would...
2: looked at that. Fair mm. enough. Yeah.
0: Okay. And what's your favorite color? You can't say black.
2: I'm gonna have to go with something something really gay to color my brain in with. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think I think some of the deep lavenders I think are, are my favorite. Ooh, Ooh,
0: that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely.
2: What, what, where does that fall though? If I were to color my brain in a lavender mm, color.
0: Great question. Uh, and thank you for allowing me to do this visual. Uh, I think we'll have to turn to. Jerry Mungadzi's new coloring book I got.
1: (laughs) Therapeutic coloring book. Wow.
0: Ross doesn't even know about this. Uh, Jerry Mungadzi has released a coloring book. It oh is my. pretty strange. What a world. There's a family in. you can color in and it will mean something about you.
1: Especially if uh, you use lavender. Especially <laughs> the deep lavender.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Here's one where the colors are described but not colored in, and then you color them.
1: Oh, it's like your it's own such strip a test. Weird book. That makes uh, me just want to color the green one pink and the yellow yeah, one blue. Exactly.
0: Oh, and did you know this, Lucian? Jerry Mungadze. Is colorblind.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I think it was you who told me that though. <laughs> okay. It's uh, every time dirty. I remember that, it gives me a fresh laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that oh, makes him feel impervious somehow.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a there's an extra oh, there psychological motive there.
1: Single blinding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, well, thank you so much, Leishan, for giving us your time so generously, and thank you for the work you've done and the amazing amount of uh, information that you have coalesced into your brain. You, It feels like we could talk to you about this all day and not get to the bottom of it. So thank you so much.
1: Well, any time. And we could have used all this time just to talk about kind of the activism aspect, the Ten Commandments, all kinds of things. Baphomet, I wanted to drill into that some more. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge.
2: Well, I'm, I'm happy to be back anytime. So let's, let's okay. chat again someday. Thank Excellent.
1: You.
0: That sounds great.
1: And for anybody, again, who wants to support your work, how best should they do that?
2: Uh, You can find me on Twitter, at Lucian Greaves, but I have a Patreon account. I think you best just look at the link to that in my bio, because I think my material is considered like 18 and over and impossible to find on your own uh, Hmm. if you're searching Patreon. So please check it out.
0: Yeah, Lucian has a great podcast, genuinely. I'm not just saying that because he's here in front of me. It's really good.
1: Excellent. Thanks again. Thank you. Well...
0: Whoa.
1: That was fun. He uh, blew my mind a few times.
0: Yeah. Very smart man.
1: Yeah. It was nice to finally meet him. Yeah. After hearing so much about Lucian, And that's it for our show.
0: Yeah. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton.
1: Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer.
0: You can support this and all our episodes by going to org forward slash join. J-O-I-N.
1: Uh, you can also support us by telling a friend, by leaving a positive review. All of that really helps us, lets people know that we're legit, mm-hmm. spreads the word. Mm-hmm. We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You can also buy a Jumbotron, yeah. org slash Jumbotron.
0: You can follow us on social media if that's your bag. We're on Twitter at ono Podcast.
1: and Facebook mm-hmm. at <laughs> Facebook.com slash OnRack. O N R A C. The worst company. That's right. Suck at Facebook.
0: Suck it, we don't like you, but we're dependent on you and we haven't moved our stuff yet. <laughs> Eat shit. Also, we're taking a week off.
1: Yeah, uh, it's birthday season, so. Yeah,
0: it's Evening Blotcher's birthday, <laughs> July 13th, what, what?
1: That's right, which is weird coincidence, Carrie's birthday, less less momentous. Oh, but
0: oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that.
1: Yeah, your birthday's coming up.
0: Whoa, because when I hear July 13th, I just think Evening Blotcher's birthday.
1: We've also both got oral surgery happening. Yes. Uh, Carrie's was so planned funny. in advance, mine snuck up, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be telling you some fun stories about about that soon when we're back.
0: Ross has finally lost enough wisdom that he's about as dumb as I am.
1: Now everybody will know exactly what happened (laughs) if they haven't had their wisdom removed.
0: Yeah, whereas I make him back with a lower voice because apparently that happens to some XX individuals who get this surgery.
1: Interesting. Well, that'll affect our album of Christian songs.
0: No, uh, the doctor did actually tell me like, uh, for some some women say that their voice gets a little less nasal a little lower and I was like not a problem okay I five fewer emails a year yeah that's fine
1: <laughs> what if we end up sounding exactly <laughs> alike <laughs> What That'd be if, incredible. What if people start saying like, "I used to be able to tell Ross and Carrie apart,
0: but now when he says I'm Carrie Poppy, I'm like,
1: probably." <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell. Is she doing a bit? I don't know. I'm so I confused. Can't tell. Well, uh, we'll see how we all come out of this. Uh, hopefully, all alive. Uh, but, yeah, we'll be we'll be gone next week, but we'll see you again the following week.
0: Yeah, when we'll be back in time to celebrate your birthday coming up.
1: Yeah, a and holiday.
0: That's right.
1: So, thank you, everybody. Great to have you for another week. Hope you enjoyed this, and... Happy
0: birthday evening!
1: <laughs> yes, happy birthday evening, and uh, happy anniversary to Ian.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got married on my birthday.
1: <laughs> Everybody's just piling on your birthday.
0: <laughs> no, I welcome it.
1: Okay. I welcome it. Uh, just want to bask in your halo, uh, and remember... And remember... You don't know shit about fuck.
0: Schmanners. Noun. Definition rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life.
2: And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and Listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found.
0: Manners, Schmanners. Get it?
1: MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
0: Audience supported.